Welcome, everyone. We're excited about this new podcast, and to get things started, I sat down in the studio with Pastors Tim Bailey and Max Corral to test out our new equipment and to spend some time planning. Instead, we hit the record button and launched into a discussion about the state of the evangelical church in America today. We talked about J. Oliver Buswell, the parachurch, the halfway covenant, preaching to the conscience, and how to help our children see their own sin. My name is Pastor Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds Podcast. My first question is, where are we today? I mean, that's that's the thing that comes to my mind. I don't I don't think we're the same place we were thirty years ago. And the question of uh, the question of the parachurch meant something thirty years ago, and there was a conflict about the parachurch thirty years ago. But it seems like it's different now. And I don't know how to explain it, but I think that... What do you mean there was a conflict 30 years ago? Well, the lordship controversy really came out of the parachurch, and that was raging probably longer than 30 years ago. Tim, when was that? When did that hit the fan, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, it was about 30 years ago, but I, I really don't think that that was a parachurch thing. I think that that was sort of... I kind of place it as the end of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism run amok gave birth to the denial of lordship. So 30 years ago is when I came to Bloomington. Hmm. And when I came to Bloomington, the parachurch campus ministries were in peak form. And they owned campus ministry. Um, InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, Navigators, to a lesser extent, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so there was no indication of those organizations having reached their dotage, which now everybody recognizes. It's very interesting, but uh, in the past um, couple of years, um, several women and a couple of young girls have been very kind and have been scanning my father's correspondence from his files. We've had files of uh, his correspondence. And I was skimming through, they finally delivered it to me, four gigabytes, 4.5 <laughs> gigabytes of scanned documents. And so I'm, I'm so grateful. But I was going back through it, and I found a discussion between a guy named Charlie Troutman, who was a family friend of, a friend of my dad's, and my dad on the occasion of my father resigning from the board of InterVarsity. So he was the first staff worker. Um really on the Eastern Seaboard, he and Mudd lived in Cambridge, and they served all of the Ivy League. And this was back in the early 40s. And they were talking in the 70s, as my father resigned, actually it would have been the end of the 70s, early 80s, they were talking about uh, what had happened to InterVarsity. So my dad had hmm. been on the board for probably a quarter century. And Charlie had worked for InterVarsity, and as had Dad. Dad had left, but he had still been on the board. And it was very interesting that my father said that the success of parachurch campus ministries was killing parachurch campus ministries. And specifically, he referred to Campus Crusade and said that they had— um, that they had just poured staff workers into campuses and that those staff workers were the center and the gravitas of the ministry. And my father said that 
um, that that was that that was a failure. And the reason it was a failure is that you could raise lots and lots of money. And of course, for years, Campus Crusade would say we're the largest mission in the world. Mm-hmm. They had unbelievable wealth. The Hunt brothers down in Dallas, Highland Park Presbyterian. I mean, it was all Clayton Bell was the pastor there. He was Billy Graham's brother-in-law. It was all parachurch. And dad said, no, InterVarsity started with one staff worker for the entire Ivy League, and that was him. And he said the good thing about that is that the center of the campus ministry is actually the students. And it does only as well or as poorly as the students' leadership. And so if you look back to 30 years ago, you were talking about, that had reached its summa. It, it was it was as good as it could be. It was good because the students were leading the charge? No, no, no. It was good because it was the height of the numbers and of the pride and of the money. Okay, but I'm trying to understand why your dad said it was only good as good as the, the students and where they were in their leadership. Well, because it. over the last 75, well, no, over the last 50 years, you know, the second half of the 20th century, what happened was the thing that was important was money and numbers. Mm. This was like, you're a missionary's kid. <laughs> you know yeah. exactly what that's about. Oh, yeah. And sure. so you report to your supporters that you had a hundred. Well, I don't want to. Right. I don't want to get anybody angry, but I mean, <laughs> you know, I've spent my life reading those missionary <laughs> letters and nothing bad ever happens. Right. And so that's what happened with Crusade. And so here at IU, 350 people every week for the meetings. Mm. And they had staff out the nose. I mean, they had so many staff workers and summer mission trips, mission initiatives, you know, Ocean City, uh, New Jersey. You know, my friend John um, Sheldon was the pastor of the PCUSA church there. And they'd all go to his church. Um, It was the height. It was money. It was success. It was numbers. But it had no center. So when you bring up the lordship controversy thing, uh, that was more centered on grace in northern Indiana and Hodges, uh, Zane Hodges. And it was kind of uh, maybe the first real hard indication that the center of evangelicalism was rotten to the core. And it's very interesting. At that time, I read the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. And I was so grateful that we had somebody who was going to stand up to it. Mm. And he has guts and he has commitments. And I'm very happy that he was standing against the, the cheap grace. But honestly, if he won the battle with Zane Hodges and with Grace Seminary, have we won the battle today? And no. Today, mm. it's just utterly utterly uh lost everything is cheap grace and evangelicalism so why max did you connect that to the parachurch stuff i guess i had always thought that that came out of uh crusade Mm. well okay bill bright thing okay i always associated bill bright with uh lordship controversy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay well there is commonality in that 
It's really interesting that all these parachurch organizations define themselves in such a way as to cast the net wide. So mm. the whole purpose of being parachurch is to avoid the drama of church, the sacraments, discipline, reform. You know, you you just cast the net wide. You don't have sacraments in parachurch. You don't have church discipline. You know, and so you can just have numbers and people getting saved and four spiritual laws and, you know, all this stuff. But the core, especially of Crusade, because I knew his son, Zach, Bill Bright was reformed. And the, the subtext of an awful lot of this evangelicalism, especially parachurch, actually was reformed, okay? And so when you connect it with Bill Bright, and I say it's dispensational, well, dispensational is reformed. It's not Arminian. Dallas is reformed. Now, of course, it's not, <laughs> you know, and yet it is. Theologically, you'd have to put them in the camp of the reform. But it's interesting. It was always subtext. It was never text because they all wrote their statements of faith in such a way as to hide denominational or theological particularities, which is to say biblical particularities. Mm. You know, the great problem of the last 50 years in uh, evangelical churches and ministries is there, there really is not one of them that if they were honest and read Galatians for the first time would think it was helpful. <laughs> in other words, the whole point was to cast your net wide, bring in tons of people, bring in tons of money, be as inoffensive and non-particular, as unspecified as you possibly could be while adhering to be, must be born again, and mm -hmm. God loves you and has a wonderful man for your, plan, not, no, mm -hmm. woman for your, uh, or how does that go? <laughs> God loves you and has a wonder wife for your life. No, that's man for it. your plan. Man, yeah. <laughs> well, whereas Galatians is one big no. Well, it's not just that it's no, but it's extremely intense. Yeah. It uses ridicule. It uses damn, damn, you know, maybe an anathema. I say it again. Yeah. And it's specific. Yeah. And so now we look and we say, well, the heart of the gospel was at stake there. But I'm telling you, no evangelical, if he'd been alive at the time, would have thought the heart of the gospel was at stake with circumcision. Trust me. Mm -hmm. You said a few minutes ago that we wanted to get rid of the drama of church. Um, the word that came to my mind was the authority of the church. Well, drawing authority. Yeah. I mean, living in 2021, you know, where's the ambiguity? <laughs> I mean, is where, there any more drama on the internet than there is over hatred of authority? Yeah. That's okay. the subtext of all the drama on the internet is everybody hates authority. Right. Right. So it moved from the parachurch to the megachurch. Well, the megachurch became the parachurch. It was essentially the same thing. Yeah. They threw out doctrine. They threw out discipline. They utterly corrupted the sacraments. They threw out membership. What do you mean by utterly corrupted the sacraments, though? I mean, I think they, they essentially, I mean, they became nothing. Um, well, the sacraments 
it's the very definition of a sacrament that it is the rubber meeting the road. Mm, That's why everybody in history has always fought over the sacraments because everybody knew that you didn't have sacraments if they weren't biblically administered. That's the marks of the church going back to the Reformation. Three marks by which you can tell the true church, the right preaching of the word of God, the right administration of sacraments, and depending on who you look to, they had a third mark, and that was the right exercise of church discipline. And so when I say they utterly corrupted the sacraments, what I mean is they removed them from the context of discipline. Mm. And they made a big show of casting their net wide, even with the sacraments. And now we have people that have even done this with the children. So that, you know, you didn't have to be a member. You didn't have to. And, and you know, if you've studied history and you know anything about the halfway covenant in New England, you know that this is just the return of the halfway covenant in new england what is the return of that the corruption covenant? of sacraments okay. by evangelicals yeah you know evangelicals are so convinced that their heart means well that their intentions are good and that uh, they know the heart of god that what they do is they say that anybody that they accept god must have accepted anybody that likes them must like god in other words, it's really an emotive relational community. It's not a community of doctrine anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the, the, the sacraments are corrupted. They're corrupted because the sacraments' authority and power is specificity. You know, the whole concept of sacraments comes from enlistment in the military. You know, the obligations, the authority, you know, that's that's foundational to the sacraments. But when you say... You don't have to be a member. You don't even have to have fruit. And we won't discipline you. And it doesn't really matter if you're um, excommunicated because you haven't been communicated. Hmm. Nobody has ever looked at you and said, I will baptize you. You're all, you know, uh, because I have heard your statement of faith. I know that you have believed. You know, you try to imagine the whole scene with Simon Magus in the book of Acts happening in any evangelical church. And it's absolutely hilarious because neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper are tied to anything other than sort of an emotive sort of, I'd like to, you know, hey, I kind of like you guys. So what do I do now? Well, you get baptized or you have your children baptized or, you know, well, come to the Lord's table. Come, 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 come. Even the conservative, some of my best friends, that's all they ever say about the Lord's mm-hmm. table. Come, 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 come. Isn't God great? Come. It, doesn't he love you? Doesn't he love me? Doesn't he love our children? Come, come, come. Yeah. That's what I mean by the corruption of the sacraments. Yeah. You asked me, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. He asked you. I didn't ask you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wrong eye contact. <laughs> so well, so ahead, is there a way in which the parachurch uh, killed the church? No, I think the so, church yeah. killed the church. By going to the parachurch. By giving up its authority. No, okay, so. So I'm, there's a thing I'm, I'm trying to fish toward something. Yeah. And the thing I'm trying to fish toward is we've noticed that the parachurch has died in terms of campus ministries. That's been our observation. Has it? I mean, is that just well, it's here not in Bloomington? In, it's or? not in its heyday. Okay. And I'm assuming it probably still exists somewhere. Yeah, yeah. well, there's a lot but of money still. My question around. is uh, what 
what role did the parachurch play, if any, in corrupting and maybe destroying the church? But more specifically, has the megachurch turned around and destroyed the parachurch? Because now the competition for the parachurch is the megachurch. In other words, the parachurch was the place everybody could have a fun time without any drama. And now the megachurch is the place where everybody can have a fun time without any drama, as you defined drama, you know, just a couple minutes ago. Okay, I have to do something which is quirky, but it's the foundation of my thinking on this. I grew up Philadelphia, then Wheaton. And in Wheaton, there was a, uh, there was a, there was a Kairos, a critical moment at Wheaton. It was in the late 30s and early 40s when J. Oliver Buswell came to be the president. And under Buswell, there was a wonderful uh, growth at Wheaton in every way, spiritually, uh, numerically, in every way. But this was at the tail end of uh, the fundamentalist controversy. And J. Oliver Buswell was in the National Presbyterian Church. I don't know what it was called at that time, but it was separate from the Southern Presbyterian because they divided at the Civil War. But it was the main line, the Presbyterian Church. It was before the OPC, before the PCA, et cetera. And all of a sudden, and now we're going back to a time when Ruth Bell, Clayton Bell's daughter, missionary to China, and then the guy that started uh, the Presbyterian Journal, which morphed into, years later, World Magazine. His son, Clayton, was the pastor of Highland Park, where the Hunt brothers said to Bill Bright, jump! And Bill Bright said, how high? Okay, he started Campus Crusade. It had... Uh, um, H. Ross Perot was in that church. This is Billy Graham's. Um, brother-in-law, okay? All these people are at Wheaton. Harold Lenzel, Battle for the Bible. Uh, Alan Emery of the old wool merchant wealth in New England, Boston, on the board of uh, Billy Graham Association, on the board of Gordon Conwell, where I went. All of these people can be traced back to a certain sort of 10 years at Wheaton. They were all there together, mm. okay? My father-in-law, Ken Taylor of the Living Bible and Tyndale House, uh, my father of his magazine, Eternity, InterVarsity, <sighs> David C. Cook, they were all there. And all of a sudden, J. Oliver Buswell was fired, okay? He was doing a wonderful job. The school was doing well, and he was fired. And the question that everybody had at the time and still has is, why? Lots of discussion. Students were blown out of the water. I can remember my father-in-law, when he was in his 80s, saying to me, that he had a bad conscience about J. Oliver Buswell getting fired. When he was a student? When he was a student. <laughs> okay. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out, I mean, he wouldn't talk like that, yeah. but he actually did say that to me. I'm, I'm personally convinced that what happened to him was he was working on the reform of the Presbyterian Church. 
I'm convinced that his work for reform was viewed as drama by the board of trustees. They felt that they could grow Wheaton better without the drama, and they fired him. I think it's that simple. Mm. And I think that all those budding leaders from all over the country that were at Wheaton at the time were just shocked out of their you know, shoes. They just could not believe that Buswell had been fired. They were caught flat-footed. I think what my dad meant that he feels guilty is that he wishes he had stood up for Buswell at the time. Okay, he and his brother were both there, and his brother went on to be a medical missionary in South Africa his whole life. Um, and I think what happened was that all those men looked at the situation, saw Buswell getting fired, looked at the cost of church reform, and decided that they were not going to give themselves to the church. I'm not saying that they left the church. What I'm saying is all that creative energy and entrepreneurial spirit that just was so pervasive of all these founders of evangelicalism, it went entirely into parachurch ministries, publishing, radio stations, conferences, camps, missions, anywhere but the church. It just did not go into the church. My father didn't go into the church. He had his MDiv. As a matter of fact, he went and studied at Faith Seminary under J. Oliver Buswell, who ended up being his theology professor. My father-in-law went down to Dallas Seminary and then finished up at North Park outside of Chicago. None of them went into the church. Now, they were all sort of churchmen, not really churchmen, though. You know, they were publishers, they were writers, they were editors, they were speakers, and all of their leadership went in, to, went out of the church. It went out of the church. My dad, father-in-law, gave Dobson his first publishing contract because Dobson couldn't get Dare to Discipline to be published anywhere. Dad said, I'll publish it. It sold like... <laughs> you know, hotcakes, and then dad gave him money to start a radio program. So you just look at all the fertile, initiative, entrepreneurial, and they were godly. That's the thing that's so different between, I knew those men who led evangelicalism. They were godly. Hmm. They were nothing like any of our famous Christian celebrities today. And I know our celebrities today also. They were nothing like them. They gave their money away, okay? And they were humble. And they tried to deflect attention from themselves. They never cultivated fame and celebrity, you know? And so it was a godly group of strong leaders. They were very intelligent. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds crazy for me to say because you just assume that, you know, anybody that's famous today as a speaker and writer and evangelism is intelligent. I don't think they are. I think they're only intelligent in knowing how to market themselves. But my father, before he graduated from Wheaton College, he had to write his senior paper. He had to write a 70-page exegesis paper to get his bachelor's degree. <laughs> you know? And so I think what happened was that the cost of reform became to these men something that they felt they could avoid by going parachurch, mm -hmm. okay? So they went parachurch, and they were unbelievably successful. 
you think they were trying to reform from the outside in? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Lucas's parents are a perfect example of this. Um, where they give themselves to missions, they came alive under the ministry of navigators, actually here at IU. And both of them uh, saw the church as corrupt. I'm not going to go into why. I don't want to. I, I, I'll just say, I, I think they saw the drama as well. I and, think they, they learned the same lesson. And so they were all about one thing, and that was a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. The problem with a personal relationship with Jesus is Judas had it. And it gets back to what I said earlier, which is the community becomes a relational emotive thing and not a doctrinal thing. Well, that's antithetical to scripture, but they didn't see it. They really didn't see it. And so what you ended up having was, you know, I'll never forget. Oh my goodness. So 30 years ago, I came to Bloomington. And one of the first things that happened is that a woman asked if she could have some counseling with me as a senior pastor of a church that had been the center of all the campus ministries for decades, all right, large church. And she came in and she talked to me about being depressed. She had a couple little children and she worked full time. And I met with her a couple of times. And as I began to get the story, what I noticed was that she had a husband. Then I noticed that the reason she worked full-time is that her husband was morbidly obese and sat at home and did nothing, didn't even do the cooking. Hmm. And then I noticed that both of them had come out of the Navigator's ministry. And finally, after a couple of times, I asked him to come in. So they were both there. And I should say, that he had committed adultery against his wife. Mm. And so this woman was holding up the financial needs of the home. She was holding up the work of the home. She was holding up the marriage. Her husband had committed adultery against her. And it was like, and she's depressed. No. <laughs> depressed? Why is she depressed? Oh, my heart went out to her. Mm -hmm. And so I called him in and he met with me with her. And I said to him, you know, I asked him this and I asked him that. I thought, man, surely this man's going to come in horribly embarrassed, you know? I mean, you understand? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. He, was, he wasn't cocky, but something approximating it. And finally, I looked at him. And I remember saying this very clearly. I, I looked at him and I said, let's say his name was John Doe. John. Do you realize that I do not think you're a Christian? Do you know there's nothing about you that says anything that is supportive of your faith in Jesus Christ? Okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just so utterly scandalized. And you know what he did? He looked at me and he said, oh, no, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and personal Savior when I was in Navigators at this school, and, and I know I'm a Christian. Mm. And at that moment, I saw so much, so very much, because he still had Navigators friends. No Navigators 
were coming up to him and telling him that he had no hope mm-hmm. and no future. Nobody was nobody was doing a thing to deal with his soul. Then I had a group of young women asked to meet with me, and they came in, and they were in they were in deep deep turmoil because they were all involved with crusade. Now all the crusade kids came to our church, including a number of their staff, not the top guy. He went to the Baptist church, but the rest of them came to our church and they came in and they said, we don't know where to turn. We have a a friend. She's an undergraduate and she's, um, she's committing adultery with a man from Bedford. Hmm. He comes up to Bloomington and, and they have sex together. And she's the leader of the Bible study in her dorm. And nobody will do anything about it. So I say, well, what do you mean nobody? You know, have you talked to the leaders? Oh, yeah, we've talked to the, to the staff workers, but they haven't done anything about it. Okay? This is all right away when I get to this church. And then, in university, I have a young, beautiful woman come in, and she's concerned about her boyfriend because he's very depressed, but he won't come in. They both come to the church. And she was wondering if I'll meet with him. So she talks to him and he agrees to come in and meet with me. And he comes in and he's a voice in the music school. You know what I mean by a voice? He sings. That's his thing, right? And uh, he sits down and immediately I notice that he's gay. Now by gay, I don't mean gay gay. I just mean gay. Yeah, he's, he's a pretty boy. Mm -hmm. You know, the way he dresses, the way he talks, he's precious. He's a voice. And immediately I'm thinking, this guy's got like sexual dysphoria. You know, this guy is like, and so he tells me how depressed he is. And so I, and so I look at him and I think I know why he's depressed, Mm. (laughs) you know, but it can't be as simple as that, you know, surely it can't be as simple as that. And so I talked to him for a while and he is extremely depressed. And then I say to him, say his name again is John, John Doe. I say, John. Do you have any sexual um, identity problems? That's how I phrased it. And he looked at me and said, no. Well, he said it in an aggressive way. And so I thought I knew the answer was yes, you know. And so I probed a little bit more. And he said, well, I used to in high school, but I don't anymore. But he admitted he was suicidal. He had gone to one of the elders of our church who was uh, uh, a doctorate in psychology. He had gone to a woman at the health center that was from our church who was uh, a physician. He had, she may even have been a psychiatrist. So two people from our church with doctorates had seen him about his depression, one over at the medical center at IU and an elder at our church. They had talked to him about his problems, Okay. And as I talked to him, I thought, this man is not safe. So I got a man from the church to agree to take him into his room, I mean, into his home and family for the weekend. We were headed to a weekend. And so he went and stayed with the family. And then he set up another appointment with me. And he said, I lied to you. He said, there's another guy in InterVarsity, and he and I have been getting together and cuddling and, and petting. And... Friday night, his roommate was going to be gone, and we had set it up that we would have intercourse that night for the first time. Hmm. 
He said, that's the reason I was depressed. And I lied to you, and I'm sorry. And do you know what I asked him? I said, can I just ask, did either the woman, physician, psychiatrist, whatever she was at the health center, remember she was at our church, mm-hmm. or this elder of ours who had his doctorate in psychology, did either of them ask you anything about your gender identity? And he said, no, they both tried to give me drugs. Mm-hmm. And so now think about this. Navigators Crusade InterVarsity. I mean, any idiot who was an InterVarsity staffer, if they'd had the slightest pastoral sensitivity, should have known what was going on with those two guys in InterVarsity, right? When two guys are getting it on sexually with each other, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it's not rocket science. You have to work hard to avoid knowing it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And now I bring all this up because this is 30 years ago. And InterVarsity, Crusade, Navigators, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, they were all in their heyday. They all had tons of people going, very successful, lots of staff workers, money pouring in. It was like we were la creme de la creme. How do you say that in French? Creme de la creme. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> and... So then what happened was, I think, that Hybels, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, uh, Acts 29, although Mark Driscoll's a little bit of an acquired taste now, he kind of looks macho, but um, C.J. Mahaney, uh, Robert Lewis down in Arkansas. Saddleback. uh, Saddleback, um, all this stuff just completely co-opted the parachurch because I think all those men thought, well, I can do this and I don't have to be asking people for money. Mm. I can be a pastor and people give money to pastors. It's interesting. At that same time, a young woman came to our house for our small group and she was the daughter of a chief in Nigeria. And she came to church for a few Sundays. And when she came to our house for lunch and, and, and for our small group, she said to me that her mother was disgusted that she had come to church and that she was having anything to do with the pastor and his wife. And I said, really, why? You know, if I, I was in Nigeria, I would want my kids to be uh, taken care of by Christians in the United States, you know, I'd be kind of happy. And she said, oh, my mother hates pastors. And I said, why? And she said, well, because in, in Africa, all a man has to do is announce he's a pastor and starting a church and he buys himself like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, uh, crocodile suit, shoes, crocodile and- <laughs> shoes and zoot suits. That's yeah. exactly what she said, That's you know? Right. Yeah. And so really all of it is of a fabric. Yeah. Evangelicalism and particularly Wheaton went bonkers into money and success. It threw out doctrine and it threw out the fear of God. And so the good that we had in the starting of evangelism, which was godly, humble uh, men who gave their money and influence away, became the gospel coalition. Ugh. Mm. And, and you see how good that all is. You know, can we go a week, please, without another one of these evangelical leaders showing to have been a hypocrite his whole life? I mean, you know, it's right. just so awful. Yeah. 
So, I mean, the the problem you you listed various uh, various parachurch groups, but I mean, the, those very same problems were in the church beforehand, are in the church. Um, I mean, we see the church seated the authority for all of those things that we started to expect. Yeah, the I'm not to objecting. Do. I'm not objecting to there being sin in the church. Right. As a matter of fact, I think the problem with the church today is that there is no sin. Mm. There's always been sin. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. I would say incest you always have with you. Hmm. Sexual abuse you always have with you. The problem was everybody acted like they didn't see it, and if they ever were forced to see it, they hid it. And nobody ever saw church discipline Mm -hmm. as the method by which God purifies us and his bride. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, you can't have church discipline in a parachurch group that doesn't have the sacraments. Because, as I said at the very beginning, the sacraments are where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to guard the sacraments from having people get sick and die by the abuse of them, there is never any point at which you're going to have discipline. You won't rebuke, you won't admonish. And what my analysis is now of the church is that there is. No fear of God mm-hmm. among Christians in this country today. There's no fear of God. And if there is no fear of God, it is not Christianity. It isn't. And so I don't think Christianity has moved into parachurches. Parachurches have no fear of God. None. None. Absolutely none. <laughs> if you ever rebuke anybody in leadership of parachurch churches today, they go, do you know how many people I preach to? And do you know how God has used me? How dare you? You know, mm. And it's like, dude, I guess you wouldn't have been Paul speaking to Peter about him moving across the potluck dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, then Peter and Paul are restored. There's no sin. There's, it's like there is no fear of God in the church today. There's none. And I tell you, that is not what those men who started parachurch ministries and publishers and mm-hmm. and radio stations, that's not what they were like. No. My father-in-law, Ken Taylor, he feared God. Yeah. And my father, oh my, he feared God. And mm-hmm. he taught me to do it. So I do fault my father and father-in-law from giving their best time and love outside the church. I do fault them for that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I wouldn't know that it was a failure if I had not been raised by them and was able to see the difference between the church and the parachurch. And a number of times in my life, I've had offers to do certain things in leadership that were parachurch. And it just hasn't had the slightest attraction to me because, and I would never be involved in missions, never. Oh, well, I, I, you know. And the reason is, Whatever the American church is doing right now, it's awful. Yeah. And so everything it does outside of the church is awful-er. <laughs> and what we have to do is go back to shepherding the sheep, to building up the flock, to discipline, to the sacraments. Okay, but that was where my mind went next. You know, you're talking about things that we abandoned as the church in in evangelicalism in the United States over the last hundred years or so. Um, And 
So then what in the world? It's 2021 now. We have a Burgerfell. We have all these things. It don't matter. Well, okay, but if 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 you try as a pastor to start having a church, an actual church, what are the things you're going to run up against? Well, I I think you know, we have a number of churches in Evangel Presbytery, and I think we all know what we run up against. And we've run up against it again and again countless times here at, at this church here in Bloomington at uh, Trinity Reform Church. Mm-hmm. Anybody who comes to our church because they've come to do like a graduate degree at IU, or they come from 10th Pres because they're out here to learn to conduct choirs or they come to get their MBA or whatever. Anybody that comes to our church from established evangelical churches or ministries or locations, if they come from Wheaton, if they come from Upland where Taylor is, if they come Mm -hmm. from Grand Rapids, will be absolutely opposed to our church. Okay? They will hate it. They, They often will say, their first Sunday, I'm never coming back here. Is <laughs> you know, He doesn't have a mic, but Phil's sitting here. That's what he said. He came from 10th Pres. That's what he said. Yes. I'm never coming back. Why aren't you coming back? Well, because. You don't preach the word. You don't preach the Bible. Is, is what he said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> He like, doesn't have a voice. Uh, we can say whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, he's sitting there. <laughs> well, why did he think we didn't preach the Bible? It wasn't because we didn't preach the Bible, but it was because the context for the preaching was not um, intellectual. It wasn't sort of, um, it wasn't safe. Uh Preaching was as if there was danger. But when you think about um, the whole issue of preaching, what it's become, conferences, what they become, books, what they become, publishing— the Bible itself, with the Bible, it used to be that the Bible, we held to the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, that it wasn't the concepts behind the words that were inspired, but the very words. Mm-hmm. But now all of our Bibles, all of them, including the Bible we use, the NASB, look at the NASB 20 edition, right. all of them have been bodlerized in the direction of political correctness. Mm-hmm. And if there was anything at the center of the last half of the 20th century evangelical movement, it was the doctrine of inerrancy. Yep. You know, and so this is the condition that we're in today. But, uh, you know, there's another thing that comes to my mind when we think about this, and that is, um, uh, I think, so we've heard the accusation in our church of being a cult, but I I think that's really significant, and I think it's worth addressing because... uh, Okay, so stop a second. Let me go back and say one other thing. Yeah. Remember how I said, if they come from 10th Pres, if they come from uh, Wheaton, if they come from Grand Rapids, if they come from Taylor University, if they come from Covenant, that they'll leave. They'll be scandalized and leave. Mm-hmm. All right. And mm-hmm. that, is, that shakes us, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, because that's our patrimony. Right. You know, that's my heritage, right? Why are they leaving? Right. Okay. But here's the good part of it. If they're honest liberals and truthful pagans and dopers and opioid addicts, they'll stay. Mm. Which makes me want to rewind 
to the beginning of the last section where Lucas says now that we live in the time of Obergefell. And what I thought and what you said was, do you remember what you said? Mm. It don't matter. Yeah, 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 I do remember. And I think that that's important. I don't think that's a throwaway Mm. statement. I think that's something that you've been talking about here, but the question of why you would say it don't matter. Well, because everybody listening to this thinks it really does matter. Okay. And that indicates that they're evangelicals and not Christians. Because what evangelicals really care about is cultural cachet, numbers, money. Status quo, comfort. Status influence. Yeah. And hipsterism, more than anything hipsterism. You know, you got to have the glasses and the haircut and- the alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I have been trying to say- f- my entire life is can we please go back to the bible now you might think what on earth does that have to do with it well because you can't serve two masters either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll love the one and hate the other you can't serve both god and mammon and evangelicalism serve mammon mm. it was all about how much money you could raise how many people would make decisions for Jesus. Uh, it's what Vern, Vern Grounds, the president of conservative Baptist, one of the f- sort of founding fathers of evangelism. And he, he talked in the TSF bulletin. He said, you know, evangelicals worship the bitch goddess of success. And that seemed to me, having grown up at the very center of all the leaders, all the famous people, all the publishers and missions and everything, and it was all about the bitch goddess of success. And my dad, at the end of his life, my dad was about the only prophet evangelicalism had. He took on Bill Gothard for sexual immorality and for abuse of scripture back in, I think, if I remember correctly, back in the 70s. Hmm. <laughs> okay. When Bill's brother in their Oak Park headquarters was being immoral. Hmm. And the board couldn't get him to deal with it. And so they went to dad and said, would you handle it? And so dad went public with it in eternity. And boy, did he pay for that among evangelicals. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. He went, he flew down to speak at Dallas seminary at their chapel and his friend met him at the airport and said, Joe, I'm sorry, but there was a double schedule and you won't be speaking. Hmm. And my dad looked at him in the car at the airport and he said, Is it, it's because of Gothard, right? And the guy said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So and he didn't he didn't want the drama, but he ended up getting the drama anyway. Well <laughs> in a in a roundabout way, because he I think because he had a conscience. You know, yeah, I don't know what to say about my dad and my father in law. Their gifts were speaking and writing and editing and entrepreneur. And so maybe I shouldn't fault them. But where were the pastors? Yeah. Where were the pastors? I spent my life in Wheaton listening to a pastor that it was awful. And I, I can remember as a sinful young man of junior high age sitting in the pew 
you know, with the Armadings, Hudson, you know, the president of Wheaton, and then Ken Hansen, who helped start Service Master, and Joe Bailey and Ken Taylor. All these people are up in the top in the front three pews with their huge families, right? And I can remember sitting there listening to the pastor who was there for many years and just thinking, I have sin. I don't know what to do with my sin. Should I give my heart to Jesus again? Is that what I have to do? What do I do about my sin? I don't know what to do about my sin. Seriously. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there and think, I've heard that there's something called sanctification. Would somebody please tell me what sanctification is? Mm. I mean, really? Yeah. And finally, that I set up an appointment with a senior pastor of this large you know, and I'm Joe Bailey's son, right? And he said to me, well, Tim, you need to give your life to Jesus. Mm. That literally. Now I want to say that I said to him, been there, done that. But I didn't. I said to him, yes, I have. I have. Many times I have. What am I supposed to do? And he said, well, you need to really mean it. <laughs> uh. And this was college church in Wheaton. And so... That was the preaching that all these leaders who were godly, Hudson Armitage was godly. But how did we get there, though? I mean, how? They, no, none of the good men. There was no Apostle Paul calling people to shepherd the flock of God. But why not? What happened? You know? I'm telling you, I think all of them learned at Wheaton that they should, the church was drama. Yeah. And that if you got involved in the church, it was, you were too vulnerable. You couldn't just do what needed to be done. Mm. Just do it. Your pastor said that, but my pastor said the same thing. And so. Very different background. but But a very different background because you actually had a concept of thinking that you should have victory over sin. We didn't, we didn't have a concept of the existence of sin for somebody who was a Christian, that was just, that doesn't happen. So, so, so you had to do the same thing. You had to get saved again if you sinned. You so, had to come and pray Jesus into your heart again if you sinned. But I mean, was it regeneration being born again for you? I don't think it was. It was like a second work or? You mean sanctification? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sanctification was just touted like, like the Pentecostals tout a second work of grace. In fact, they have the same background. The second work of grace being being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. In the Wesleyan Arminian denominations, the second work of grace is entire sanctification, where you are perfected hmm. in in sinlessness. Or how do you get that? Well, it's an experience. Actually, it was written into the discipline of the Wesleyan Church at the time I was in it that it was called a, sef- a second definite work of grace. Mm. In the discipline? Subsequent, second de- definite subsequent work of grace to salvation. And so it was expected to be, it wasn't ever expected to be something that was lifelong because you they just believed that. And by that time, Wesley's doctrines had been so, uh, what, developed? brought to a place where they they actually got to the place where they didn't even have a concept of dealing with regular sin every day. Mm-hmm. It's a surprise mm-hmm. to it's a surprise to people in my background to actually talk about sin mm-hmm. because what you're going to talk about you sin? You you still sin? Mm-hmm. And what you know is that they all still sin. 
but they don't have a grid to even think about how, what to do, how to deal with it. It's that that's been my, you're actually were there with your pastor saying, what do I do about my sin? I couldn't go to a pastor and ask him, Hmm. what do I do with my sin? Oh my. Your pastor gave the exact same answer probably that Mm -hmm. my pastor would have done, but I was not supposed to have such things. Right. Yeah. But I'm convinced that I was completely anomalous in that church. Completely. Yeah, it could have been true. Because uh, I think it was because of my father. My father was no man's fool. Mm. And he quoted scripture and he feared God. And so I think I grew up with an awareness of the holiness of God that was very unusual. What I find interesting listening to you right now is to think about the fact that what you describe as your childhood in a Wesleyan Arminian tradition is identical to the Reformed Church today. It's identical. Yes. Mm. Absolutely Nobody talks about sin, but they didn't get there by their theological commitments. They got there because nobody ever pastored and shepherded the people. Nobody well, don't ever preach. called them. They never preached. And see, they never this gets them. back at what you said earlier, which is it don't matter. I'm convinced that the solution to America and the Western world is preaching. Yes. The pulpit leads the world. That's yes. a quote from Moby Dick. Moby Dick. And it's a pulpit hmm. preacher who says that, right? I was absolutely convinced of that. The reason people don't know they're sinners and the reason they don't know that God is holy is because we have not had any preachers who have warned the people that God is holy. And that, you know, you look at the warnings. I was just reading today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as the Israelites did. And so Hebrews quotes this. But what's the context? It's not unbelievers. Right. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. See if Jesus actually lives in you. Right? Right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do his good will. And we don't ever talk about those things because we, uh, we have to then acknowledge sin. And the pastors have to acknowledge sin with the people. The pastors have to look at the people and say, you know, Annie and I were teaching, we teach a children's membership class, and we were talking about baptism. And uh, in our in our membership catechism, we talk to the children about baptism being an outward visible sign of something inward and invisible. Mm. And try to communicate that to children and then ask them to go home and ask their parents for uh, a an accounting of the inward, invisible work of God in their hearts. Even try to form the question for the children to ask their parents and then have have to coach them in the idea of seeing their parents answer with something resembling the work of God in delivering them from their sin and giving them victory so that the sin does not reign over them in their lives today or that they've seen a difference between now and 10 years ago. And it's a difficult, difficult exercise. It's difficult to explain to children, but in one sense, and then it's not in another. It's interesting. We're not talking about children um, because I, and I think it is very connected to this whole conversation because, you know, the last thing I want to do 
as a father is expose my children's sin. You know, I want my children to be a certain way. I want them to be godly. I want them to be this and that and the other thing. But if I'm going to be a good dad, I they need my help for to see their own sin. Why don't you want to do it? Yes, yeah, that's exactly the question. <laughs> Why don't you want you. to do it? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, no, it's that, the same reason all of us. Don't yeah, it's, it's because I don't. I mean, I don't want to do it for myself. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think for most of us, the reason why we don't want to talk to our children about their sins is that it's scary. Okay. Yep. 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 It's just plain out, drag out scary. It's scary to think of what they'll do when they find out. It's scary for us to think, what if they don't find out? What if God doesn't work in them Hmm. to see their sin? What if they reject what we're saying to them? You're going to cop to that, Lucas? Would you agree? Oh, yeah. It's terrifying. I think that's what scares all of us right down to the core. Okay. so, So now let me say something else. I come into a large church, all the evangelicals, all the parachurch are in the church. And the first thing I notice is that immediately prior to the worship, immediately, there's laughter and loudness and and that when we start worship, nobody, the, the worship leader who was the choir director at the time, he doesn't ask people to stand for the worship of God. There's no call to worship. There's just this sort of seamless transition between then what a friend we have in Jesus. And it seems like there's no shock and awe about God because actually we're God. That's what I think. Hmm. But they talk incessantly about Jesus, okay? Incessantly. And I think to myself, I don't think these people know Jesus. And so I decide to preach through the book of Matthew because I think they need to be introduced to Jesus. Now, very quickly it became clear to me that preaching to the conscience in that church and calling for repentance and humility was breaking all the rules. <laughs> and all of a sudden, something occurred to me. And it was that as an evangelical pastor, whether Presbyterian or Arminian, it didn't really matter. I was Presbyterian, PCA, PCUSA before that. It was my job to protect the congregation from the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay? Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yep. Seriously, that was my job. Maybe that's what parents think it's their job to do. Well, what's so scary about the Holy Spirit? Because you can't control the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. and because he humbles you. The Holy Spirit is absent in our strategy, marketing, and long-range plans. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean... And so I go back to you not wanting to talk about the sin with your children. You know that the fruit in the heart of a child, including a covenant child, if anybody's ever read the book of Romans, yeah, not all Israel is Israel, not all Abraham's descendants are, okay? This is determined by the decrees of God, by the sovereignty of God, by the election of God. This is decreed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of an individual. We cannot control this. We can claim his covenant promises for our children. We can plead with God 
We can read his promises to him as we plead to him, but we cannot control the work of the Holy Spirit in a church, in a sermon, Mm. in our fatherhood, in our motherhood. And the work of the Holy Spirit is not, in fact, coterminous with his covenant people. And we can fail to speak to the consciences of our children, just like pastors fail to speak to the consciences of their people. And we can do we can uh, do so uh, in order to protect our children from the very thing that we really believe they mm-hmm. absolutely need. Yeah, and we're and it's and it's a bizarre reality. Do you remember all those years ago? We're traveling west to go to a, a, uh, a Acts twenty nine pastor saying we've got four or five men in the van. We got a, got a pastor with us from Cincinnati. We're driving along, and he's saying to us, "Well, you know, I'd like to speak to the consciences of the people." Now that wasn't his actual words; those weren't it his actual words, close. but it's really what he was saying. I'd like to speak to the consciences of the people, but. Here's my worry. My worry is that if I speak to the consciences of the people, then the covenant children of the church, they might get disturbed. Hmm. That's what he said. <laughs> and he said that in exactly the wrong van. He didn't yeah. realize he was right. <laughs> well, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It was horrible. absolutely horrible uh, because that is, that is the halfway covenant of colonial yeah. New England. Where, you know, you read Cotton Mather, I read this recently, actually, and he's talking about the fact that they all came over to the to the United States because of their concern for the little lambs. That's the word he uses. And so they had moved from England up to, to Holland, thinking that they would have more freedom to worship, but they found that the, that the local children and the youth of Holland were corrupting. So then they moved to the New World. And then they saw that their children were not walking with God. And so then they went ahead and let them come to the Lord's table, halfway covenant, come to baptism, bring their children to baptism, even though these people, many of them made no claim to have a saving faith. Mm. Okay? And that's the context for, for Jonathan Edwards' final battle that, that got him fired from Northampton is that his father, Solomon Stoddard, I mean, not his father, but his maternal grandfather, his maternal grandfather, whom he succeeded, had been a pastor for seven years. And one Sunday, he was administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so he began to view the Lord's Supper as... uh, Saving ordinance. As a saving ordinance, and so then he believed that people should take the Lord's Supper who were not Christians. And Edwards inherited that and practiced it for a long time and then repented. Mm. You know, and so I think about the whole attempt on our part to avoid the humility and the admission of weakness in, in depending on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's always a temptation of ours to avoid discipline, to avoid exposing sin, to avoid preaching to the conscience, to do any of this stuff, because what do we care about more than the salvation of our children? Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Well, I, I want to go back. You know, Since you asked me the question, I've been thinking about it, and I think another reason, aside from it scaring me you know, to help my children see their sin— it's that I think of the excruciating pain of it. For them to bear? Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
you know, I, I believe that it is what leads us to the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's excruciating. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, it's just, it's weird because I know his motivation isn't the same as yours, Lucas, in this matter. But the pastor in the van going to the Acts 29 conference isn't significantly different in what's in what's holding him back mm. as mm. the father in the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of both of them or all of us are in that same boat trying to say we're fighting with ourselves saying, will I trust my children to the Lord? Well, yeah, I'll trust my children to the Lord. But will I trust them to the Lord? And tell them the truth mm-hmm. about themselves and about God. Will I introduce them to that God that should that will scare them and should? Yeah, and you know, I've I've now I'm almost forty, so I suppose I can start saying that I've been around long enough to see that it is my privilege as a father to show them their sin when they're six, seven, twelve. Because it doesn't get any less painful if they are an adult son or daughter and they have years of sin and heartache and, and horror that God can, can, God can rescue them from that as well. Especially if you've protected them from the consequences mm-hmm. of their sins for all those years. Right. So when you were saying it's painful, I thought of Jesus saying, who do you say I am? And Peter's response was, uh, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. On this rock I will build my church. Mm. And then I think of that scene with Peter where Jesus gives the wonderfully horrible teaching unless you eat my body and drink my blood you can have no part in me mm-hmm. and it says that at that time many left him and then do you remember what jesus said to the disciples are you gonna leave too yeah and do you remember what peter says you have nowhere <laughs> else to go lord lord we have nowhere you alone what have the words of life. Have the words of eternal life, yeah. And how can we describe that as pain? Hmm. Unless our children see how hopeless they are. Do we really need more evangelical children who, who think that it's just a matter of learning to make the right choices? <laughs> You know, do we really need more more of our sons and daughters hearing commencement addresses about how they can be anything they want to be as long as they believe in themselves? In other words, that's the alternative. Yeah. The alternative is not some place that is devoid of lies and not painful. Mm-hmm. The, the only choice for our children is that they will be lied to and they will believe all the lies. And that's what all social media is, is lies and believers of lies. Or they will be humble. And the only way to get humble is to see 
your sin as it really is in God as he really is. And so I don't quite believe you. <laughs> no, seriously. Well, I think it, it's probably a combination of the fear of trusting, hmm. of trusting your children to the law as the taskmaster. Oh, man, that's hard. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, also the fear of and the concern about how they will be and what it will happen when they wake up and see it, which is the very thing you want them to do. I think we just always are trying to make God smaller, and that's the nature of idolatry. Make it happen somehow. Mm. We can make it happen. And it's not as scary as you think it is, and it's not really as hard as you think it is. And you just have to make right choices. Because all those things wean us from dependence upon God. Mm. But God wants us actually to be dependent on him. I, I keep thinking about this while we're talking here, and it drives me crazy. And I just had the thought, no, no, there will be other times and places. But I don't know that there is a better time for me to bring up the issue of pedo communion. Immediate connection in my mind when you say that is there's presumption. If we're silent to our children. When we ought to be, call we ought to be speaking to their consciences and calling them to God. If we're silent, we're doing it because, in some way, we're being presumptive. And if we add to that presumption other activities, like pedo communion, we're just we're just adding to the presumption. Well, what I the reason I brought up pedo communion is first of all, it's almost identical to the halfway covenant. You know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That it is to begin to commune people that we used to have a principle to not commune until they confess faith in Christ. And I don't want to argue the issue of exegesis. I think paedocommunion's exegesis is horrible and self-evidently horrible if you actually read 1 Corinthians 11. And I've written about that. But here's, here's the reason I bring it up here. Um, we ought not to use the sacraments as a method of reassuring mothers that their children are saved. That's what I believe is the heart of pedo communion. Hmm. And nobody can doubt. I, I actually have served communion in a pedo communion church afterwards. I didn't notice what was going on. Mary always said, you realize that you just communed a bunch of children in that church. I was speak at a speaking engagement. And I said, no, I didn't. Hmm. You know, and she said, yes, I did. <laughs> she said, she pointed around, you know, it was a couple hundred, 250 people and a bunch of the children had taken communion. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is that's another way that we try to circumvent humble reliance upon the work of God in our children's lives. And I know paedo-communionists will all say, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're using the means that God has. Look at the Passover. The children were at the table and everything. But the fact is that the sacraments have always in history been abused to make uh, a claim about those who participate in that they receive grace ex opere operata, okay, by virtue of the act itself. And that, to me, is identical to preaching to people as if they're all saved because you don't want to scare them. You don't want to scare the children. What's the difference? You know, he says in the car as we're driving, I would like to preach to people the real word of God, but I'm afraid it would scare my children. Hmm. Remember, that's what he said to us. He was a paedo-communionist 
you know, that was his whole thing. And I think that we have to reclaim the biblical truth that our God is a consuming fire and that vengeance is him he shall repay and that his word is a hammer and that his prophets are given steel for their foreheads because they serve a rebellious people. Now, you know, I could just keep going, right? You, you know that. But can we just stop here and say that's what's absent from the church today? Mm-hmm. And as I see it, I just look at my childhood. I look at what has changed. And why do I think Obergefell doesn't even matter? It's because if we will have restored to us men that tremble at the word of God and who preach in the fear of God and who preach the fear of God and who have faith to give the law to the children and the little lambs of the church, okay? Knowing it is their crossing guard, their schoolmaster to Christ, okay? There will be a revival in America, and America will throw Obergefell out, okay? I don't have any question that if my people humble themselves, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we will not do that. We will not do it. And so we blah, 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 blah about Obergefell. And the fact is all these guys that are celebrity Christians, how do they get the money and publishing and speaking engagements and sycophants that they get? Well, they do it by living precisely at the point where they can hold on to the constituents who are Christians, who will continue to give them money and buy their books and come to the, and not be declared uh, verboten by mainstream media and the masses. Well, the minute Obergefell hits, they have to move a little bit more towards homosexuality, LGBTQism, all this stuff. That's the whole point of our book, The Grace of Shame. We show how all these celebrity leaders changed when a burger fell hit so that they were more palatable and would still get asked on Fox News. Mm. And the people got sucker punched and the people just moved with all their leaders. And you can see this again and again. Obergefell only matters to people who are desperate to hold on to the celebrity status and their money and the students at their schools and the invitations you follow. Mm -hmm. And so if that's what you want and Obergefell hits, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. But if that's not what you want, if you love the church, if you love God's rams and ewes and lambs, If you want the glory of God, sometime every three years, that's how I would describe myself, (laughs) you know, then it's freeing because you don't have to keep a close watch on how awful things are. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Corral. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Cheers. <laughs>